from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. We're back on the road for our 2022 U.S. Farm Report College Road Show. This week we're in Manhattan, Kansas from Kansas State University. And here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Infrastructure issues continue to cripple farmers' ability to move grain at peak harvest. That's as a rail strike still looms. Is the rapid rise in inflation taking a bite out of meat demand? Meat protein is one of several categories where we're seeing evidence that consumers are tightening their decisions. One Kansas State University economist says consumers are willing to pay more for some goods, but not others. Feeding into the prospering pet food business. My hypothesis is that pet foods actually provide a floor or make our food less expensive. How this Kansas State University research could be a sustainable solution for an aggressively growing market. And in John's world. Everybody's building a chip making plant. The 2022 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from Kansas State University is brought to you exclusively by Bex. From farmers' first pass in the field to the final one at harvest, it's a game plan rooted in faith and belief. Bex Hybrids is with you every turn because both on and off the field, we're all farmers at heart. See why at BexHybrids.com. Now for the news, U.S. farmers continue to face logistical headwinds moving this year's harvest. The Mississippi River is now seeing additional closures due to the low water levels and the need to dredge to keep the important waterway open. Multiple sections in Missouri, Kentucky and Tennessee have been closed as well as at mile marker 529 between Davenport and Dubuque, Iowa. The Army Corps of Engineers is also building a mud wall near New Orleans to prevent a saltwater intrusion from contaminating water supply. And despite the difficulties right now moving grain out of the country, especially on the Mississippi River, the U.S. Grains Council says exports for the 2021-2022 marketing year topped 122 million metric tons. It says that's the second highest total on record. U.S. Grains Council says record exports of ethanol, corn, DDGs, and pork and pork products combined with fewer imports from China made Mexico the biggest U.S. market for volume. And it looks like the shipping situation is improving at West Coast ports, especially when it comes to imports. At the port of Los Angeles and Long Beach, the backlog of ships waiting to unload has been reduced to just eight vessels. Back in January, it peaked at 109. Experts say there will continue to be bottlenecks in the supply chain through the end of the year, but progress is being made. The Los Angeles port chief says a labor deal with workers is still likely, but months away. The deal involves 22,000 dock workers. Port of Los Angeles Executive Director Gene Sirocco says it may take several months to reach agreement, but he says disruptions while negotiations continue are unlikely. And we continue to monitor the potential for a rail strike as yet another union has turned down a proposed contract. The latest, the Brotherhood of Railroad Signalmen. It's the second group to turn down the deal made with negotiators from the Biden administration. And new demands are being made by at least one union. Track maintenance workers want another seven days of paid sick time to ratify the five-year agreement. The major freight railroads appear unwilling to comply. Six of the 12 unions have voted in favor of the terms, but all 12 must agree to avoid a strike. That could start on November 19th. I don't think we go into a full out strike because I, I don't think the economy can handle it right now. And I think the administration knows that as well. But that's why I think the union's standing strong because they know that too. 
This is causing concern among end users and fear it may slow shipments similar to late August and early September. Well, some key financial indicators continue to show concern about a recession. It comes as the Creighton University Rural Main Street Index survey shows ag bankers are leery of an economic downturn in 2023. It fell for the sixth time in the past seven months and is below growth neutral for the fifth consecutive month. The 10 state region's overall reading for October was 44.2. That's on a scale of 100, and that compares to 46.3 in September. Almost one in four bankers, or 23%, say the economy is in a recession, while three of four expect a recession to begin in 2023. And harvest has been moving quickly in Iowa with the dry fall, with 88% of the soybeans and 59% of the corn combined at this point as we look into our I-80 harvest tour. Yield results have been variable, especially moving west to east. In western Iowa, faced below normal moisture for the second season. And while his yields are better than expected, they will be down from last year. I think we're probably going to maybe hit this 180 in here. I was thinking we're going to be 150 or less, but I think it's a little better than I thought. All right, that's it for the news. Now, some areas of the country seeing that much needed rain this week, including parts of Kansas. We'll have a check of your forecast coming up next. The I-80 Harvest Tour is brought to you exclusively by Case IH. Case IH equipment is designed, engineered, and built by farmers. See their stories at builtbyfarmers.com. Time now for a check of weather. Andrew Whitmire filling in this week. Andrew, some areas of Kansas seeing a little rain this week, but just to the south and east of here, some heavy rainfall fell in an area that desperately needed it. So is more of that rain in store coming up this next week. And Tyne, hopefully we can get a little bit more added moisture here as we flip this calendar from October over into November, especially across parts of the central and uh, southern plains as again we really need that added moisture. We look at the Climate Prediction Center though and their outlook for precipitation for the month of November is really kind of painting a dry picture for the southern half of the plains as well as parts of the deep south. Meanwhile, an active pattern likely will be setting up, especially for the first half of the month across parts of the Pacific Northwest. Let's take a look at the root zone map here for this uh, upcoming week. The last one uh, here for the month of October. And again, lots of reds and oranges is something we don't want to see. That's the again, the very dry soils that are basically inundated up and down uh, the plain states. Uh, really the only good news uh, to kind of pinpoint is parts of the four corners, not nearly as dry. In fact, parts of Arizona and New Mexico uh, could even ease up a little bit on some of that added moisture. And we're even seeing some of that drier weather working its way across parts of the East Coast, uh, parts of the Carolinas and Virginia, tapping into some of that drier weather as well. And if we walk you through the drought monitor that was uh, released here on October 27th, uh, you will see that again, we have added drier locations here across parts of the Tennessee, Ohio River Valley. And again, we've seen some improvement across parts of the Southern and Central Plains with that exceptional drought. Uh, but nonetheless here, a wide chunk of real estate here dealing with some type of dry conditions here uh, as we have gone throughout to this uh, Thursday and this trend is likely going to continue here as we go into at least the first half of November. Let's track that jet stream for this uh, Monday here for this Halloween. We'll be watching a slight dip in the jet stream that's going to allow for some added moisture chances for Halloween across parts of the Great Lakes, Midwestern states and even across parts of the eastern seaboard. 
Meanwhile, as we head on into November, Tuesday, November 1st, we're going to be watching this trough kind of develop here. And once that kind of develops, it's going to kind of stay parked across the western half of the country. And that's going to allow for a more active pattern to shape up for the western half. Meanwhile, the eastern half of the country is going to be influenced under this upper level ridge. And that's going to allow uh, temperatures to be well above average. And we're even going to see the potential there uh, for uh, not many rain systems to kind of work their way through. This always shake up Halloween here again, a wet pattern shaping up for parts of the northeast coast there. Then as we head towards a midweek here, high pressure kind of dominating. We'll be watching that trough developing across the Pacific Northwest, bringing with it some mountain snow as well as potential for some pockets of heavier rainfall. And that's the kind of where a lot of the moisture is going to be situated. We'll have to watch for some very small, subtle systems to kind of come on through across parts of the central U.S. and across parts of the eastern U.S. to get any additional moisture chances across the lower 48 temperatures this week again with that uh, trough developing out west that's where the below average temperatures are likely going to be situated meanwhile above average temperatures expected for the eastern half of the country and where that trough uh, does decide to set up that's where we're going to see much above average precipitation for the western half of the u.s thanks andrew well the lack of rain means the transportation sector hasn't had a break or a chance to catch up this fall from cattle numbers to grain prices, we will cover it all from Kansas State University with our Marketing Roundtable next. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. The new Loadmaster 2X Harvesting Dual Box Dump Cart is capable of lifting and dumping up to 60,000 pounds of product and filling 36 or 40-foot semi-trailers in just one dump. Find out more at the H&S website. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report here at Kansas State University. Excited, it's homecoming week, and we have a great group of students joining us for our live taping, so thank you, all of you. We have uh, Parker Volgamore, Lonnie Hobbs, as well as Glenn Tonzer joining us for our panel this weekend. Glenn, we'll start with you, because right now, when we're heading into the election, a lot of talk about recession, a lot of talk, are we in recession or not, inflation impact on consumers, but you've been studying that. So when it, you look at meat demand today, are we seeing consumers shy away from the meat counter just due to the simple fact we are seeing inflation take hold? So the short answer is yes, we're seeing consumer behavior change. Uh, it's easy to get caught up in the discussion and definition of a recession. I encourage us to hone in on is consumer behavior changing, the way you phrase the question, I think that's the right way. And price sensitivity, consumers are responding to price stronger than they were a year or two ago. And I think that's because real wages have declined. And when I say real wages, the cost of living has gone up more than what people are making. So there's a price squeeze or the financial belt is being tightened in a lot of households. And meat protein is one of several categories where we're seeing evidence that consumers are tightening their decisions. We're seeing some trading down within the protein complex. Um, you know, think going from a bacon product to a ham product or from a ribeye steak to a sirloin steak. There's a lot of examples like that. Um, but the Meat Demand Monitor Project at K-State gives us a lot of points on that. And the short answer is yes, we're seeing a lot of change. But Glenn, in the past, it's been some of it trading from, you know, maybe some, some steak to maybe chicken. But we see double-digit price increases on all levels. So are we seeing them change what protein they buy specifically? Yeah, so the double-digit price change is a function of several things. And we're going to talk supply chain here in a minute. But when costs are going up, that pushes prices up. When demand is strong, it pulls prices up. Yeah. Both of, over the last couple of years, pulled and pushed, prices higher. And we got to be careful to not just assume it's a supply or a demand component because there's both at play. Your question about the response to inflation largely is consumers having a net pay decline and they're tightening their belt. But that's a demand statement, not a supply side statement. 
Well, Lonnie, let's talk about supply chain because I know we have to look at it, you know, the consumer side of the supply chain and then the ag side of the supply chain. Two separate entities there that we have to look at, but do are we making any headway when it comes to some of these supply chain issues in ag or the consumer side? I would say so. Um, in ag, as Glenn said, we're seeing a price increase, which is good for the farmers. Um, but in terms of the consumer side, um, these driving prices, as Glenn said, is altering the demand itself. But in terms of the supply chain, we're seeing these rising prices because of a variety of factors such as rising transportation costs, rising cost of ingredients, rising cost of the processing that goes along with a lot of these products. So we are seeing rising prices in all areas that, as I said, can be good for the farmer, but in terms of consumers um, may alter some of their purchasing decisions. When you look at transportation as far as the supply chain, we have low river levels, you know, that's still an issue. We have rail, a possible, possible strike looming. I mean, when you look at supply chain, it doesn't seem like we're going to see this go away anytime soon. Do you have a timeline on how long farmers will maybe have to deal with some of these supply chain headaches? Um, in the short term, I would say no. Um, I would see this going on into the next year. Um, I think over time, things will get better, especially as the labor force um, begins to pick up. But I do think that this is something that farmers should be aware of moving into the new year. Another thing we're keeping an eye on, Parker, when it comes to, uh, you know, looking at this next election, inflation may impact some election decisions, uh, you know, talking about a, a looming recession, supply chain, but also from the ag side, we're looking at Farm Bill. And so you, I know you were in D.C. this summer. When you look at discussions of, of Farm Bill, what is the hot topic? What is the priority specifically for agriculture when we look at this, this next Farm Bill? Now, as it comes to um, the Farm Bill, of course, inflation is driving a lot of conversations, but there's a lot of discussion taking place now about um, leading into the election of how we're going to uh, balance some of the different priorities uh, within the Farm Bill. So looking at con conservation programs, the conservation title of the Farm Bill has grown significantly. It's a major priority under the President Biden administration. Um, so a lot of agricultural producers and um, their respective advocacy groups are looking at how can we ensure that we improve the sustainability yet still um, improve productivity of, of agriculture. So I think it's the idea that productivity and sustainability are not necessarily mutually exclusive. And that's where the role of the federal government could come in and help support some of those new policy changes um, with subsidies and things like that through the Farm Bill program. All right, some really good insight. Thank you all. All right, we need to take a quick break, but we have a lot more to talk about. We'll do that when we come back on U.S. Farm Report. Well, last week, John Phipps talked about why the manufacturing of chips here in the U.S. is a hurdle and could continue to be that way. He has part two of his chip shortage discussion on the show this weekend. Last week, I talked about the numerous plans to build semiconductor factories, especially here in the U.S. Now, the key word is plans. This enthusiasm to spend billions, much of it government money, may not generate the results we think we are going to get. For example, think back about three years ago. There was little mention of any chip shortage, so supply and demand were probably pretty well matched about then. Semiconductors were getting better and cheaper, which contributed to low inflation for many electronic consumer goods and other goods as well. 
In other words, if you ignored which companies were making profits and how much, the average consumer was not in a really bad place for those products. So the only big problem I see our chip making plan solving is to avoid doing business with China. Only as I've tried to show, the behemoths in this market are South Korea and Taiwan, nations friendly to the U.S. and valued trading and geopolitical partners. While demand for semiconductors doubtless will grow, the manufacturing capacity on the drawing board just in the U.S. could flood the market in a few years, especially if we run into a recession. This has caught the attention of industry leaders and, more importantly, investors. Another problem is when you have such concentration in any industry, like we have with TSMC and Samsung, they have immense power to simply undercut competitor prices, making the recovery of expensive new plant costs very difficult. This is kind of the Saudi Arabia business plan. We can always pump it cheaper. Both these companies are planning fabs in the U.S. in anticipation of some type of import restrictions. Oddly, we seem to have forgotten the similarity with Japanese auto manufacturing a few decades ago. If semiconductors follow the same pattern, U.S. companies will have more competition at home, and as auto manufacturers found out, lower pricing power. New U.S. plants will still require critical imports from chip-making equipment to rare earths like neodymium. It takes a globe to make a chip. Now, what does all this mean for farmers? Well, I can't find much downside. I wouldn't bet on all those fabs or factories getting built, and it doesn't eliminate the complex global supply chain required for those new plants but it should keep the flow of new technology for our machinery and consumer goods more reliable, relentlessly improving, and relatively cheap. All right, we need to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're staying in Kansas this week for Tractor Tales. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Tendovo Soybean Herbicide, raising the pre-emergence bar one clean row at a time. See how Tendovo delivers weed control without compromise at SyngentaUS.com backslash Tendovo. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we're gonna to head to Kansas for a special reunion with a 1955 Case 400. This is a 400 Case, 1955, 400 Case diesel. Uh, it's, my dad bought it brand new from Joe Henning Implement in Lawrence, Kansas. All my life, whenever I saw a 400 diesel, I would check the serial number on it to see if it was dad's. And then uh, I found this one on auction and it was dad's. 806-8888, which is all eights. It's easy to remember, so. Yeah, it means a lot to me. Of all the places it could have went or got scrapped or anything, yeah. I don't know how many times, how many owners it had, but the last owner I got it from had used it for mowing and had it probably for 30 years. Now, he had it longer than we had it. Dad bought it in 55 and he traded it off in 60. I was five years old, and it came out. Uh, Helmer Joe Hang brought it out on the truck and unloaded it, and he left, and Dad said, you want to go on a tractor ride to Mama and I? And we said, yeah, so 
we went out here and went down the corner and back and there was snow on the ground. But I remember it and oh that's kind of the thing with the fenders on it. The fenders have been welded up. I it needs new fenders, but I hate to put them on there. That's the fenders I always hung on to when I was riding around with dad on the tractor. So it yeah, it's probably my biggest tractor find getting the actual tractor back. To actually get it back is pretty amazing really. Thanks, Greg. Well, when you think of companion animals like cats and dogs, you probably don't think about what it means for agriculture. But researchers right here at Kansas State are serving up some research that may mean big business for ag products that you raise and produce. We'll tell you why next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Welcome back. Well, a survey from Forbes found that 78% of pet owners acquired pets during the pandemic. It's a booming segment and one that researchers here at Kansas State University are working to serve up pet food products that meet a growing appetite. We take our uh, designation as the state's land-grant university very, very seriously. And so those are things that we do that no other four-year uh, institution of higher learning does. And so uh, we, we are embracing that uh, historic uh, mission and really kind of moving it forward because we really believe that's the way to solve these uh, problems going forward. Kansas is the second largest pet food producer in the nation uh, next to Missouri. With nearly 3,000 pet food related jobs across the state today, Kansas State University Pet Food Program Director Greg Aldridge is helping feed that growth, but through research. The focus of our research is really on companion animal nutrition and it, the foods that we provide those dogs and cats. The pet foods program here at Kansas State University explores not only the ingredients, but the process that helps create foods for dogs and cats with a special focus on nutrition, shelf life, and food safety. Uh, specifically, we're looking at ingredients and the process and how they come together to create foods for our dogs and cats. And our specific area is to look at the effects of those ingredients and processing on nutrition, shelf life, and safety of foods. Aldridge says considering there's more than 180 million dogs and cats today, the pet food market is one with a growing hunger. So the idea is, is that we need to make sure that the foods we provide them have all of the full nutrients uh, and that we deliver it to them in a bioavailable way and that they're safe from pathogens and that they are also safe from a long-term storage standpoint. So shelf life is really key. Today, the U.S. pet food market is a $42 billion market and Aldrich says that grows anywhere from 5 to 10% each year. The types of crops, the types of ingredients that we use are generally cereals, so corn, wheat, rice. Uh, specifically in the proteins category, we're looking at beef, chicken, and various uh, types of fish. Uh, we're trying to bring those proteins and those starches together to form a perfect pet food. And a new ingredient this program is working to tap into, dried distiller's grains. And what happens is, is as we're moving that starch out of the ingredient into ethanol with yeast, we're concentrating the protein level and the yeast also are providing more protein. But what may be even more impressive about the growing pet food market and the research here at Kansas State is how what some consider waste in the food manufacturing process can actually be a valuable ingredient for dogs and cats. 
The pet food industry has been very supportive of the entire food complex. If you think about it this way, uh, if we're manufacturing or producing beef or we're producing chicken for our edible uh, meals for our tables, only about 50% of that material and 50% of that meat product ends up on our plate. The other 50% is a co-product that has to go somewhere. And he says it's a similar scenario for grains. My hypothesis is that pet foods actually provide a floor or make our food less expensive. From new technology and creating new treats to also looking at even more ingredients that could be fed to dogs and cats, the pet food program at Kansas State isn't finished uncovering a future of pet food. A couple of ingredients we've added to the queue are things like miscanthus grass, which is a purpose-grown fiber source coming out of the southeast Kansas and southwest Missouri. As the biggest growth today just may be how sustainable the pet food market will be for years to come. The idea that uh, we're going to leave our world better shape than what we found it. Uh, pet has been a big player in that, as I've just described previously about co-products and where they fit. But being able to capture that additional value and communicate it to the pet owner for the next decade or century. Well, pet food may be in high demand, but what about meat demand when it comes to consumers? We will talk about that with our marketing roundtable from Kansas State University when we come back. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. All right, a lot more to talk about for our marketing roundtable this weekend from Kansas State University. Glenn, let's talk about cattle numbers. Drought, we know it has been a uh, devastating drought here in Kansas. Looking at the latest drought monitor, not much improvement. Saw some rain this week, but really not enough. So when you look at these cattle numbers and the cattle contraction that we've already seen take place, do you think those numbers are baked in or coming You know, with the next cattle inventory report? Do you think we could have a bit of a surprise? There's a lot of uncertainty on what that you're alluding to the January cattle inventory report. The most common estimate is we'll be below 29 million beef cows in the U.S. in that report, which would be about a 4% decline compared to last year. Uh, for quick reference for our listeners, if that's realized, if we're below 29 million, we got to go back to 2014. It was the last time that was the case. And before 2014, you got to go back about 40 years since that was the case. So it is a historic pull down in the number of beef cows. But I think it's largely baked into the markets to answer your question. So I think the market is expecting that. If we have a big change from that, that would be a surprise. But something on the order of about a 4% decline year over year in U.S. beef cow numbers is what nationally we're expecting. And that's important to emphasize the word national because drought is not a national phenomenon, right? But it is hitting the core of, of kind of where we are seeing cattle raised in the country. And so when you look at the supply side, that seems like a bullish factor. But then you have demand and that what we talked about before, are we going to see recession and inflation impact? And you say it's already impacting some consumer decisions, but which wins out? I mean, are you worried that the demand side will struggle enough that even with tighter supplies, we're going to have some issues with, with cattle prices next year? Uh, so, yes, I am concerned to put a bow around this, but supply side forces are definitely supportive. We have fewer animals coming in. In the cattle industry, there's a two or almost three year lag at times from when we pull a decision to expand or contract the herd and what that does to beef supply. So we're going to have less beef on the domestic market, uh, but it's not just domestic, it's also foreign. So foreign demand for U.S. beef is very strong despite a high U.S. dollar. We can't take that for granted. Uh, so it's the domestic demand as well as foreign demand that both are at play from geopolitical and macroeconomic forces. I am concerned that we'll have some global and at home demand slippage, but I think there's reason to be optimistic. We're going to pull supply down enough that that will offset it. 
So that brings up other challenges about utilization of feed yards and packing plants. There's a whole lot of stuff we can talk about there. But if you just jump to the end of the day cattle prices, I think there's reasons to believe that cattle prices are very likely going to be higher over the next two years. When you look at how we're seeing that change kind of on, on meat demand, I know you focus more on the pet food side of it, but are you seeing consumer behavior change at all post-COVID and especially now that we are seeing these higher prices? Yes. Um, one of the things that we're seeing, especially in pet food, the prices of pet food is rising. The demand for pet food is rising, yet the quantity of pet food that's purchased at one time is dropping. Um, and we're also seeing an increase in the protein levels and protein demand in pet food that is primarily driven by animal-based proteins, um, which is a byproduct of the human-grade food that's going on. But overall, the actual products that's being demanded is not shifting, but the quantity that's being now, I know a lot of different grains, a lot of different meat products go into the pet food market. Are we seeing that demand change at all that could impact farmers and ranchers here in Kansas, whether it be less crops, more meat? I mean, are you seeing any of that change from the pet food side? Yes. So we are seeing, as I said, a rise in the protein levels and protein demand, which is driving a new market for more plant based proteins, um, which create opportunities for farmers to take advantage. Um, in terms of the protein demand from chicken, beef, lamb, veal. Parker, we have a very important election coming up in a couple weeks. I know we've mentioned that, but depending on that outcome, could it impact the direction that we take in these upcoming farm bill discussions? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of uh, factors that play into the farm bill. It's a huge omnibus package that includes a lot of different titles and a lot of different things. I think one of the biggest challenges when we look at this upcoming farm bill is one, we're behind and um, it's set to expire here in September of the next year. So there's a lot of work to be done and I think there's a lot been put off because of the election. So I think that in and of itself has been an impact. All right. Well, thank you all for being here. We really appreciate it. We need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Well, this year in Kansas, drought has been devastating to producers, a state that often deals with little moisture, especially in the western part of the state. But here at Kansas State, researchers are working to become even more precise when it comes to measuring soil moisture. We can only manage what we can measure. From automation and robots to remote sensing, precision agriculture is in focus at Kansas State. What we are trying to do with the group of engineers and material scientists is to work on measuring soil moisture and soil nitrogen, or soil nitrate specifically. But thanks to a project funded by the Department of Energy, that work is getting a boost. We're trying to in situ or in soil quantify changes in soil moisture and soil nitrogen. Those are the two big drivers of crop production systems. While precision agriculture is a couple decades old, that technology is now getting smaller and even more precise. For example, you can have satellite imagery or airplane-based imagery, or more recently, UAVs or drone-based imagery. And the resolution of those imageries are be becoming finer and finer and finer. These are still surrogate measures. These are not direct measures of what we are trying to ascertain, crop health, growth, and development. With that in mind, Coastal asked his engineering colleagues if there was a way to measure soil moisture across the field, but in as many places as farmers wanted. And the answer from the engineer side is yes, we can do that. But it requires logistical, almost 
nightmare, if I may say, because it has multiple sensors that need to be buried in the ground. With the amount of labor, time and money required to do something like that, the team came up with another idea. So what we proposed, could we develop sensors that are tiny, so they're micro sensors, that have chip on them, that are primarily sleeping most of the time. They're buried in the soil, either on the surface or subsurface area. And then you ping them as, an off, as often as you want, ping them to get a measure of the property of interest. Hundreds of sensors randomly placed in a field that translates that data precisely in ones that are less expensive and not as labor intensive. And that's what triggered the idea if we were to make these sensors on materials that degrade over time, then we don't have to worry about going back and collecting them. From water to nitrogen, it's an effort that isn't just at Kansas State University, but also UC Berkeley and UC Boulder. What we are trying to do is no battery, very tiny, cheap, printed sensors that you can distribute them in hundreds and forget about them. Well, we need to take a quick break, and then when we come back, John Phipps rejoins us this weekend for customer support. The NRCS Conservation Stewardship Program cost shares more than 150 practices on farms and ranches. Visit your local service center or farmers.gov today. Well, whether it's television or radio ads or an advertisement that pops up on your phone as you're reading a news story, Class action lawsuits when it comes to agriculture seem to be picking up pace, and that sparked a question for customer support this weekend. From Dave Bauer in Victoria, Minnesota, I really wish they would limit attorney's fees on class action lawsuits. The recent class action lawsuit involving Syngenta on corn, to me, is a great example. In this case, as I understand, the lead attorneys got 40% of the settlement. This was a $1.5 billion settlement, so the lead attorney's firm got roughly $600 million and us farmers all got our prorated share. I am a small farmer. I realize they had a lot of expense in this process, but in my opinion, no way could they justify that type of payment to them. I really wish they would have, ha would have to file their actual expenses with the judge or someone else and they determine what is a fair settlement for the attorneys to get in any class action lawsuit and pay the actual plaintiffs more. To me, the real winners in these class action lawsuits are the attorneys, not the little guys. Dave, I've heard that before, but free money tends to bring out our worst, the worst in all of us. Even though farmers got a significant amounts for what were debatable losses, I mean, who knows what market prices would have been otherwise, it still rankles many that lawyers got 40%. Why? Well, the short answer is because they can. Some things to remember, though. Class action suits used contingency fees. If the Syngenta case had failed, I wouldn't have been billed for those attorney fees. Second, without class action suits, litigation to recover damages for any single plaintiff would have been too expensive to even consider. Third, attorneys have to demonstrate they have diligently sought out and documented as many injured parties as possible. Fourth, 
Much of our attitude about such things is based on low public regards for the legal profession as a whole, for a wide range of mostly false reasons. We don't understand or much appreciate lawyers until we really need one. That also means that most of our experiences with attorneys tend to be under unpleasant circumstances. But the clincher is attorney's fees are determined mostly by competition. Perhaps all attorneys collude, but that's pretty hard to imagine. And 40%, though, it turns out to be the kind of the going rate. 40 may seem like too much for too little work, but for perspective, keep in mind the fact that about 40% of the price of an iPhone is profit for Apple. Thanks so much, John. And again, we will get that posted on our Farm Journal YouTube page. Well, when we come back, there may not have been a lot of water running off here in Kansas this year, but protecting the watershed is a focus for Kansas State University. We'll tell you why as we wrap up our college roadshow from Kansas State University next. Welcome back. Well, 98.5% of Kansas is in drought right now, and 58% of the state is covered in the two most severe categories. With a focus on water, Kansas State University Extension is working to protect a resource that is so precious to Kansas farmers and ranchers. In a year like 2022, water was a scarce resource for many farmers here in Kansas. A reminder on just how precious and vital that resource truly is. We're dependent on the Ogallala High Plains Aquifer. If we did nothing else in the next 50 years, that water resource would be 70% depleted. And 40% of the wells that we're able to pump today and sustain agriculture, we'd no longer be able to do so. In an effort to protect that water supply, the Kansas Center for Agricultural Resources and the Environment, or KCARES, knew more work needed to be done. And so 15 years ago, the Watershed Restoration and Protection Strategies, or WARPS, was then started and funded by EPA. K-State recognized that there was a need to merge the extension approach with uh, the watershed approach in those programs and we created positions known as extension watershed specialists and those individuals work directly with landowners to help identify solutions to nutrient runoff or other practices that might be impacting their local water resources. Those extension specialists have boots on the ground working with stakeholders across the state. That might be uh, cattle producers or row crop producers or even municipalities, and they identify uh, whatever issues might be impacting their water resources and then come to collaborative solutions to address those concerns. This year, the concerns were driven by drought. People are very interested in alternate water sources because they, they are having problems with creeks drying up or their ponds, uh, the ponds fill up with sediment and then there's, there's no water in them. Will Boyer is one of four full-time extension watershed specialists. Watering systems are, are so important because the livestock in Kansas very often have direct access to a stream. And when they do, you know what happens, you know, the tail goes up and, and pollution comes out. And if they're down in the stream when that happens, then 100% of that waste has an impact downstream. Boyer says by introducing an alternate water supply and tank, it limits the waste that will travel downstream and impact people. But he also says it's a big benefit for producers. We sometimes hear stories about animals falling through ponds, sliding down creek banks, 
a baby calf being being bumped down the creek bank and dying. So there, there's some positive uh, uh, returns to the livestock producer as well. From adding fencing to other adjustments to the water source and the land, Boyer says systems like this differ as he tries to cater the system to a particular need. But most of the water systems can be powered by solar. The panels have, are half the cost of what they were several years ago, but they're less than or about 100 watts, a dollar per watt. So the two on the right are, are 100 watt panels and, and you can get those for about 80 bucks a piece. It's work that Boyer and other extension specialists are doing that are already making a big splash. Kansas is actually usually um, in the top five in the nation of using this watershed based approach and seeing direct improvements in reductions of nitrogen, sediment, and bacteria, things like that. So um, we're really proud of the fact that this approach is working. That does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend, and we hope farmers and ranchers just continue to get rain to replenish the soil moisture here. Drought has really been devastating. Well, thank you so much for watching our road show this weekend. We're wrapping up our college road show with Bex next weekend from the University of Missouri. And believe me, it is one that you won't want to miss. We'll see you next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.